Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie Imray. If this is your first episode tuning in, hi, hi, welcome, it's great to have you here listening. Each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and talk about a true crime story, so that sounds like something you might be interested in, then hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on, that way then you won't miss another episode. This podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. So last week we looked into a kidnapping gone wrong case that happened in 1960 in Australia. And I posed a question to you lovely listeners on last week's episode, as well as the Instagram page, which is at Coffee and Crime Podcast. Go follow. Um, And I asked whether or not to do a 1960 Australian crime wave series because there are three big cases that happened in this decade that really shocked the nation. And they were the cases that, quote, marked the end of innocence in Australian life, end quote. So, yeah, so I posed the question and thank you to everyone who interacted with the story, with the page that followed the page, liked it, all that. It really, really does help. So thank you all to that. But the results are in. And the majority of you said yes. So this week is part two of our three-part Australian series. And it's the next big case in the 1960s Australian crime wave. Warning. The following episode contains discussion of sexual assault, rape, brutality and murder that listeners may find disturbing. This podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above Listener discretion is advised. Cronulla is one of the many, many, many suburbs in Sydney, Australia. It's famous for its like swimming and surfing spots. Like there's so many beaches in Cronulla. There's so many beaches in Australia, but especially in Cronulla. There's the Cronulla Surfing Academy. There's snorkeling, sailing, fishing stand-up paddle boating, like, if you're a water baby or just, like, any kind of water activity, like, Cronulla is the place to be, right? In relation to last week's case that happened in Bondi, Cronulla is about an hour's drive south of Bondi. Wanda Beach is just one of the many beach territories along the coast of Cronulla. It's about one and a half kilometers long, and then it joins on to another beach, like, there's not really a wall you just move on to a different territory um Wanda Beach is next to the Wanda Reserve and it's the most northern patrolled beach in Cronulla so that's patrolled meaning like lifeguards and having like the flags of where to swim and where you can't swim and all that kind of business besides from the case we're about to talk about Wanda Beach is famous for its sand dunes and its trails like perfect place for families to have picnics and have fun in the sand it's further away from like restaurants and cafes and other beaches are but that's why it's the perfect picnic spot however in 1965 Wanda Beach became famous for a more morbid reason so it's Tuesday January 12th 1965 peak of summer on the beach having fun in the sand having fun in the sun well, this is what local Cronulla resident, Peter Smith, Cron- Cron- Cronullian? 
Is that what you guys call yourselves? Crinolians? I don't know. Anyway, he was out with his three young nephews, enjoying the sun and the beach, playing around in the sand dunes. And Peter saw what he thought was a mannequin. Everyone thinks it's a goddamn mannequin, right? I don't blame them. You see something that's like body-like, body-esque, in a place that a body shouldn't be, you, you're going to think it's a mannequin. It's a, it's a common theme. Anyway, so Peter started to like push the sand aside, kind of see what it is. And then he realized that it was actually a body, like a real body, not a mannequin body, a real body. Like how traumatic for the people who, so all the unsolved like crimes that we've talked about or like crimes where people have found the body. It's just, I don't even know what I'd think or feel in that point. Like would I scream? Would I just freeze in like shock and horror? Like trauma, trauma. It's all I can say. How terrifying. So Peter grabbed his three young nephews and he got his jog on. He sprinted to the surf club and he called the police to say that he found a body in the sand. What Peter didn't see was the second body. So, in 1958, eight-year-old Marion Schmidt moved to Melbourne, Australia with her parents, Helmut and Elizabeth, and her five siblings, Helmut Jr., Hans, Peter, Trixie, and Wolfgang. Like, his actual name is Wolfgang. Such a cool name. (laughs) The family had moved from West Germany to Australia under a government initiative to help families after the war, right? So they stayed in, like, migrant hostels and emergency housing and, like, government-funded places for a couple of years. They also welcomed baby Norbert, Norbert Schmidt, in this time as well. And in 1963, the family found a permanent home in West Ryde, Sydney. Marion was about 12, 13 years old when they found their permanent home. So the Schmidts had moved in next door to Jim and Jeanette Taig, and they had their granddaughter living with them. This was Christine Sherrick. Now, it's unclear exactly why Christine lived with her grandparents. So her father died when she was about three years old. Her mother got remarried and had moved to Seven Hills, which is about a 30-minute drive away, but Christine didn't go. She, she stayed in Westride. Right, I I just couldn't find a reason why. But then in 1963, when another 12, 13-year-old girl moved in next door, hey, hey, best friends. The two tweens became super close. They spent all like every waking moment with each other, right? Christine loved going around to the Schmidt's place, like with all the siblings and all the company. Like it was such a huge contrast from living with her elderly grandparents. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with her living there. She thoroughly enjoyed living with her grandparents and would go everywhere with them and whatnot. But now she has this like little little getaway where she's got all these kids around and this other girl who's the same age as her. Like, why wouldn't you, right? So the girls would like listen to music and run around with her siblings outside. They would write in their diaries together. Like they just best friends. They just had so much fun being in each other's lives. And they were, it was so convenient. They live right next door to each other. 
like they, they just merged effortlessly. So you know when you're a friend and you just click. Well, this was Christine and Marianne. In summer times, Christine would accompany the Schmitz on their journeys, like their outings. I think Jim and Jeanette, her grandparents, probably didn't go on as many, so now she could go with a family that already had seven kids, so what's what's one more, right? So they would go on picnics, they would go to the beach, they would just <clears throat> live in life. It's, oh, it sounds so cool. Imagine your best friend living next door to you. How good. In June of 1964, Helmut, Marion's father, he died after suffering from Hodgkin's disease, which is a, um, it's a type of cancer. Very nasty form of cancer. It attacks your organs, nodes, and blood vessels throughout your body. Um, Elizabeth was now a widow with seven kids to look after, and Helmut's death not only brought Marianne, Marianne and Christine closer together, but Jim and Jeanette, they would, you know, help look after the kids. They would all have meals together and, and whatnot. So it brought the two, the, the neighbours, you know, all close together. So months go by and finally summertime rolls around. Everyone's starting to, like, look up, you know. The sun's coming out. It's warmer. Christmas time, New Year's time. Things, things should be getting better right? Well, unfortunately, Elizabeth, Marion's mother, had to wait for surgery, so she was admitted and confined to a hospital bed. This did leave Marion and Helmut Jr., the two eldest, in charge of the younger kids, but Christine was there all the time to help out, and Christine's grandparents would, like I said earlier, would, you know, make big, big meals that they could heat up and eat. Like, it lifted a weight off Elizabeth's shoulders, knowing that her kids were being looked after while she was in hospital. On Friday, January 1st, New Year's Day, Marion and Christine jumped on a train and went two and a half hours out to Wanda Beach. Now, the beach was packed, right? New Year's Day, the sun is shining, families, group of friends, everyone's at the beach. But you know who else is also at the beach? Surfers cute surfer boys and this is something that the two teenage girls were you know starting to find an obsession about there were some diary entries that possibly indicated that the two girls actually maybe met up with some boys had a cheeky kiss or two like you know 15 years old why not right saturday january 2nd Marianne and Helmut Jr. then took all the younger kids to Wanda Beach. But, yeah, so Christine didn't go this time and don't know why. She probably spent the day with her grandparents. Who knows? Anyway, then the following weekend, January 9th, Marianne and Christine asked Elizabeth if they could take all the kids to the beach. And Elizabeth agreed. She said, yep, no, that's fine. But, unfortunately, on a very rare occasion... The weather was terrible. It was pouring down with rain. It was windy and the beach was going to be closed. So unfortunately, they couldn't go on the 9th, but they said that they would go on Monday the 11th. So Monday rolls around and the weather still wasn't great, but the girls were like, nah, we'll go. They were quite adamant, like that. they were very persistent that they wanted to go to the beach so Marianne, Christine took 
Peter, Trixie, Wolfgang and Norbert on the two and a half hour train ride to Wanda Beach. This left Helmut Jr. and Hans back at home and they said they wanted to like clean the house, do some chores, go see their mum at the hospital and just help her out, right? So the group of six arrived at the beach at about 11am but because of the strong winds the beach was still closed like there was not I mean how, how do you close a beach right but so there was no lifeguards out there was no one there on duty it was signs saying that it was unsafe to swim and like it's not a beach day go home but Marion and Christine they weren't there to swim they were there to like enjoy a day at the beach right they wanted to sit down have a picnic that they made and, like, they didn't want to get back on a train and go another two and a half hours without having anything to show for it. So they just walked a little while down the beach. They found some rocks within the sand dunes, which kind of gave them a bit of shelter from the wind. And then they sat down and they all started to enjoy their picnic of sandwiches. So not long after sitting down, like, literally within the first 30 minutes, Christine just got up and walked off, like, randomly nobody knows where she went when she came back it wasn't too long she was gone but it was a bit random like you don't just get up and walk off without telling everyone where you're going but when she came back she then suggested that the group walk down a little bit more leave the day packs and the picnic basket where they were let's just go for a little explore right so they started off and Because of the wind, it was now whipping sand into their faces. It was causing them to walk quite slowly. Like, the younger kids started to complain. Like I said, it was just not a beach day. Ladies, what are you doing? At around 12pm, so they were literally only there for an hour. And they were, like, sitting down, eating, then getting back up and walking again. The girls found another sand dune to sit down. And they got the kids sorted and they said... Marion and Christine were going to go back to get the packs, like the the picnic basket and the day packs and whatnot. So kids, you just wait here. We're going to go off and we'll be back, right? The Marion had left them a, like a radio and they set off in the wrong direction. They kept going. They didn't turn back the way they came. They kept going. Peter, I don't know all the ages of the kids. I only know that Wolfgang was eight years old at the time. But I don't think Peter was too much younger than Marion. But he said, where are you guys going? You're going the wrong way. Marion and Christine laughed him off and continued on. Weird, right? Peter watched them walk off into the distance And this would be the last time that Peter, Trixie, Wolfgang and Norbert would ever see their big sister and her best friend again. Around 12.45pm, Dennis Dostin, a local firefighter who was at the beach with his son, he saw the two girls walking down the beach and he said that they kept glancing behind them as if, you know, they were like checking to see if anyone was following them, but he couldn't see anyone who was like actively following them there were other people at the beach even though it wasn't a beach day but there wasn't anyone who was like actively like pursuing them if that makes sense but 12 45 p.m on monday the 11th of january 1965 
was the last confirmed sighting of Marion Schmidt and Christine Sherrick. By five o'clock, Peter, Trixie, Wolfgang and Norbert were getting worried. They were confused. They were sick of the wind. Like they just, they just wanted to go home. They've had better days at the beach. But now they were like, where is our big sister and where is Christine? Like what's going on? So they decided that they would start making their way back to the day pack and the picnic bag where they had left earlier. And when they got there, like, it was clear that Marion and Christine had not been there because they walked off in the other direction. Like, what? So then they decided that they needed to get the train home. The last train home to West Ride was at 6 p.m. So I am so shocked at, like, the maturity of these kids. Like, they are all obviously under the age of 15. Marion's 15 at this point. So I could possibly argue that they're all, like, 13 years and younger right so Peter was like now taking charge and he had to suss them out like the mental capacity this kid has right anyway so yes they get on the train at about 6 p.m and they arrive home in West Ride around 8 30 8 45 ish they went round to the Schmidt's house no sign of Marion and Christine they went round to Christine's grandparents house Again, no sign. So they told them what happened. And immediately, Christine's nana, grandma, whatever she called her, Jeanette, she rang the police to report them missing. Sometimes police will turn around and be like, oh, they're just kids. They've run off. They'll come back. Or, you know, like they kind of dismiss it, especially like if it's if you report someone missing within the first 24 hours. But in this case, police didn't even question it. Because they know, they were known to be well-behaved, polite young women who, who didn't cause trouble, right? So immediately they went round, they got all the information from the kids and they were like, all right, well, you know, tomorrow we'll go check it out at Wanda Beach. But then January 12th at 2.30pm, police received a call from Peter Smith, the Cronulla resident, about the gruesome discovery that he had made on Wanda Beach. So Peter took the police to where he had found the body. It was face down, buried in the sand. Um, Upon digging around the body, the police found that there was a foot touching the head of this victim, and the foot belonged to a second body, which was lying on its side. The victim, who was face down, was 15-year-old Christine Sherrick, And the victim who was laying on her side was 15-year-old Marion Schmidt. Marion had been stabbed multiple times, between 25 to 30 times. Her heart had been punctured and her throat had been slashed so violently that it had actually almost severed from her body. Christine had also been stabbed, but the back of her head showed signs of blunt force trauma. Both girls had their bathing suits cut. It was cut around their chest, so part of their breasts were exposed, but also it was cut around their lower genital area. There was semen present in the crime scene. There was some found on Christine's like shorts, like what she was wearing. But investigators ruled out rape. They said that it was there was no sign of rape. 
and this irks me because when doing the autopsy they found that the girls both of the girls hymens were still intact now remembering that this is 1960 but what we know now like that means f all like you can have sex and your hymen still be intact you can be a virgin and you can lose your hymen riding a horse you know what I mean like it 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 doesn't mean anything but again this is the 1960s it's not well-known science at this point but there is like I believe the girls were raped and going by what the web sleuths which is a resource that I've linked in the bio like it's it's a pretty clear consensus that the girls are believed to have been raped Christine had a blood alcohol level of 0.015, which if they track that back to 24 hours prior, it was equivalent to one bottle of beer or a couple of shots of a spirit. But it was never determined which it was, not that that really matters. It just showed that she had alcohol in her system. They also found celery and cabbage in her stomach contents, but the ingredients that were in the sandwiches didn't contain celery or cabbage. So where was this food from, right? Like there were so many questions and not a lot of answers. Where did the alcohol and food come from? Like the young kids say that they never saw any alcohol in the picnic basket. So like could the girls have bought it anyway and, you know, like snuck it away or or. Did someone give it to them? Why did they walk in a different direction? What Could they have planned to meet up with someone? Or like, did they bump into someone? Like, what happened? What happened to them? But there was like, no evidence, no nothing. They, they just had the bodies, right? What they do know from the crime scene, there were some drag marks. And because of the injuries that Christine suffered, it's believed that Marion was murdered first. She was being stabbed. And Christine tried to make a run for it, but was caught up to by whoever did this and was knocked from behind with a blunt object, stabbed and then dragged back to where Marion's body was. Now, there were pools of blood along this like dragged path, but there were points where the blood was like pooling more than others, which su- which could suggest that the murderer had like dragged and then stopped dragged and then stopped so possibly that the killer wasn't overly strong I mean Christine was quite a petite girl but because of this like inconsistent blood trail it would suggest that they stopped quite frequently to you know have a rest I guess so Peter Trixie Wolfgang and Norbert obviously they were questioned about the events of the day now quick side note when I studied psychology and criminology at university I found child psychology so freaking interesting man like how the child mind works to put things together that they can't fully like comprehend like what my sister's been stabbed like no like who does that like you know what I mean like how they cope with traumatic events their memory skills aren't as concrete as an adult's one is so it can be quite difficult when it comes to interviewing children in criminal cases it needs to be dealt like sensitively it needs to be like oh it's just so interesting so it had to be done like more delicately right so 
this is the the gists of what each child kind of added to the to the story right so peter who was the eldest of the four um so he kind of gave them the the best timeline of of what had happened that day about them catching the train them getting there christine walking off coming back going to another place and the two girls walking off so he told them how they walked off in the wrong direction and how they laughed at him when he said like wrong way so then this suggested to police that they walked the wrong way on purpose right that it wasn't a mistake to do that Trixie, she had told the police that she saw Marianne and Christine talking to a teenage boy on the train ride, but upon further investigation around this boy, he had actually got off at an earlier station and he wasn't at the beach. Wolfgang, my main man Wolfgang, eight-year-old Wolfgang had the tea to spill, right? He said that when Christine went off by herself for the first time, Wolfgang noticed a teenage boy who was nearby and he was crab hunting. And he did it with a knife or a spear or both. Like, unfortunately, Wolfgang's story did keep changing. And that's a very common thing to see when kids recount stories. But the one thing that was consistent, and again, when kids recount stories, there are specific things that will be consistent in when they recount things. And this was the description of the boy that Wolfgang saw. He said that he was shirtless, he wore light grey shorts, and he had a bright blue towel. Um, His hair colour did change, but it was either dark blonde or light brown, which to be honest, there is, there's, there's a fine line in between that, right? So they were starting to get an idea of what this guy looked like. The only issue is that his description matched about every surfer beach boy in Australia, right? Like sandy blonde hair, going surfing, like, yeah, unfortunately it was very, very vague. But Wolfgang did say that he saw the boy nearby again when Marion and Christine walked off. So he said that he saw him a couple of times. So it was something, but not much. But it was the most that they had. It was the most that police had, right? So the police started their interviewing, their investigating. They interviewed, so obviously, um, the Schmidt children. They interviewed people who knew the two girls, whether they had any enemies or if they had any secret boyfriends. This is when they came across the diary pages that from earlier on January 1st, which may have suggested they had like met up with some people, possibly had said, oh, look, we'll come again and meet up again. So there was over 7,000 individuals interviewed in this entire case, right? The Wanda Beach lifeguard told police that there had been a man who a few days prior had to be physically escorted off the beach because he was like sexually harassing some girls. But they didn't take a name or they didn't write down his description. They just verbally like gave, again, a vague description of a beachgoer. 
So the police did put the vague descriptions in the papers. They offered a 10,000 Australian pound reward, which is about 20,000 Australian dollars today, um, just for any information that would lead to the capture. Now, like we saw in last week's case, when there's a monetary reward up for grabs, People, for some unknown reason, would call with fake information. Some of them even confessed to crimes. But because this description pretty much matched every teenage boy in Australia, there were some people who were calling in about their classmates. Like, there's a sad story about... There was a boy at some local school who wasn't liked very much. He was a bit of an outcast... And there were just a sick group of bullies who decided to call the police to, like, dob this boy in. Like, say, oh, it's this kid in our class. Like, he's a real weirdo. And because there was, like, multiple kids calling in about this one boy, the police actually investigated him. Like, that's sick. That's so... Mm, that's so sad for this kid. But to no avail. There was... They weren't getting any closer. There was no evidence. There was no nothing. The police begged the public to come forward. Like, actually begged. They made multiple, t- like, appeals on television. Because the the beach was still kind of busy. Like, surely you would have seen the girls. Or you would have seen this, this shirtless, blue-toweled boy. Or if it was, you know, if it was him. But also, a girl's being stabbed and her friend is running away. There's no way she didn't scream. Like, even with the wind, someone somewhere surely heard something, right? So the police were like, you're not going to get in trouble. There's no repercussion. Like, just come forward and tell us what you saw. But no one did. Other than Dennis, who was, like, the last one to see the girls, no one came forward. So the case ended up going cold. And to this day, the murders of Marion and Christine remain unsolved. So we're going to quickly talk about some suspects that were, like, looked into very closely. So Christopher Wilder. Now, there is a whole episode about this guy that is on the list to be done. So I'm just going to skim over him real quickly. But essentially, Christopher had been convicted of a gang rape of a 13-year-old girl on a Sydney beach in 1963. Christopher then fled to the States in 1969. He became a bit of a serial killer in the 80s. He was dubbed the name the Beauty Queen Killer. He came back to Australia in 1982 to visit his parents, but was then charged with sexual offences against two 15-year-old girls who he had forced to pose naked. Then he managed to fly back to the States, killed more women, and then ultimately died in an altercation with police. He was never interrogated or charged with the Wanda Beach murders, but he was on the radar until he died. Now, there's more about him. Don't get me wrong. Like there is, like I said, there is a whole episode about him, but he was convicted because, oh, he was thought to be a suspect because of his prior gang rape crime and just the fact that he was around Sydney at the time of um, the Wanda Beach murders. Derek Percy, who is a nasty piece of work. Derek Percy was in prison from 1969. Uh, He was in for the murder of a child on a beach in Victoria, which is a different area 
altogether, but still in Australia. Um, he was thought to be the murderer because at the time of the Wanda Beach murders, he was actually in West Ride at the time. He was visiting a friend's grandparents' house or something, and it was actually close to where the girls lived. There was no other connection to them at all, but this is what the police like hung on to. The police were hoping that he would confess on his deathbed, but he didn't say anything. So the police didn't actually reveal that he was a suspect for a long time because they were hoping he would say something and it would all come to light. So when he died, when Derek Percy died and didn't say anything, the police were like, hey, everyone, we thought it was this guy. This is why he's dead now. So I guess we'll never know and would hope that it would kind of like go away really, but nah. The most compelling suspect was Alan Bassett. Alan was sent to prison in 1966 after he raped, strangled, and murdered 19-year-old Carol Orphan in Wollongong, which is about an hour south of Cronulla. Alan was sentenced for life but like anyone actually stays in jail for life. He was released in 1995 after serving 29 years. Now, while in prison, Alan painted a picture and it was called A Bloody Awful Thing. It was a painting of an abstract landscape, but it had blood trails, a broken knife, evidence of a victim. So after Alan was released, one of the detectives who worked on the Wanda case this was Detective Johnson, so this is now in 1995, so it's been, you know, about 30 years since the the Wanda Beach murders, so Detective Johnson saw the painting, and with all of its details, he was convinced that Alan Bassett had something to do with the Wanda Beach murders, or at least knew something about it. There were details in the painting that weren't necessarily released to the public, But there were also details relating to other unsolved murder cases that had happened recently. So, very quickly, in January in 1966, 56-year-old cleaning lady Wilhelma Kruger, she was found strangle-stabbed and mutilated in Wollongong. And in February 1966, a month later, 27-year-old shop assistant and prostitute Anna Dowlingkoa she was found strangled, stabbed, and mutilated in Bondi. So all within a, like a two-hour radius. So there's Wollongong at the bottom, Cronulla in the middle, and Bondi at the top. Both of these two victims, Wilhelmer and Anna, they had show, they had signs of sexual violence um, committed against them. So the police believe that the Wanda Beach murders and the murders of Kruger and Dowlingkoa, you know, possibly could have been related due to the brutality of the murder. But it was Detective Johnson who thought that, you know, Alan knew or had something to do with it. Johnson was starting to, like, write up a case and he was actually going to write a book, like, remembering now that this was, like, 30 years on. But unfortunately, he died in an accident before he could finish the book or go any further with it. There was a crime reporter from the Daily Mirror. This was Bill Jenkins. He took over the book from Detective Johnson 
and he ended up getting it published in the late 1990s. And this was about the theory that it was Alan and what, like, the evidence that supported that theory with the painting and all that kind of business, right? When the book was released, and because remember, Alan's not in jail anymore, he actually claimed um, defamation against the publishers of the book. But the case was thrown out, like, immediately because he was a convicted murderer. But not before Alan voluntarily gave a DNA sample to clear his name of the Wanda Beach murders. But to this day, we don't know whether he was or wasn't eliminated as a suspect. Like, the results never came back to the public. Which I think is suspect. Suspicious, right? Fast forwarding to 2016. A young woman went to the police. A young woman. Yeah, she was uh, She was in her 40s. Middle-aged woman. Um, a middle-aged woman went to the police to accuse her father of sexually abusing her when she was younger. The man, he's had name suppression in order to protect the, the daughter, the woman that came forward. So he was convicted and sentenced to eight years in jail. And this was in 2018 that he was sentenced to jail. When the police interviewed the victim's mother his wife, she said that he also admitted to her back in 1972, like when they first started dating, that he committed the Wanda Beach murders. She said that, like, he he said it, they were at the Wanda, they were at Wanda Beach, and he was like, oh, you know those beach murders? Yeah, well, you know, I did it. She, they had just started dating, like, what a weird thing to say to your new girlfriend, but anyway... Um, she left it off, but then was like, hey, like, you can't joke about that. It's, it's not funny. He paused for a while and was like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm joking. But the, you know, this woman was like, mm, got really weird about it. Um, now that he had shown like his true side and the fact that he was capable of doing unspeakably, unspeakable things, like sexually abusing his own daughter, the woman was like, could he like could he have actually done this? She she didn't know if he was joking or not. So she had told the police this. Um they also found out that this man had also gone to the same high school as Marianne and Christine. He was obviously a frequent goer to Wanda Beach and he enjoyed surfing. So he started ticking off boxes right? Like the public could not ignore that fact when the allegations came out. But as of 2018, the New South Wales police have declined to comment on the allegations regarding the Wanda Beach murders or whether they were going to pursue them or investigate them against this man. So who knows? Who knows? Because after that, like the case is cold. That's it. They there is no answers. There are no answers to any of the questions. They still don't know where the alcohol came from or the food that was found in Christine's stomach. They, they don't know. And nobody is saying anything. The aftermath of the murders, like, unfortunately, there isn't much to, like, there isn't much reported about what the families did after the deaths. Like, I literally scoured the internet to find out what happened to Christine's family, like her grandparents, how did they react, or her mom, did she move back, or, you know, I couldn't find anything. 
The only thing I found on Marianne's family was Hans, one of Marianne's brothers, the ones that didn't go to the beach. In 2017, at age 66, he did an interview. Um, it was describing the events of 1965 on that, that fateful day, how he recalled how he had to go into the hospital and tell his mother, quote, the girls didn't come back from the beach, end quote. He said how his mother instantly knew that they were gone. She just started bawling her eyes out and she said to him, like, they're gone. Hans recounted how he took his mother to the police station to see the evidence and the reports and then for years waited and hoped for answers, seeing the case go cold and then be reopened and all these suspects come in, but like with no no end, you know. Hans recounted seeing his mother, who was now a widow, and a mother who had lost her eldest daughter, like struggle to carry on. There was no such thing as like grief counselling or support groups or anything like that, so she just had to like wing it. Like how awful. In 2009, Elizabeth Schmidt passed away from stomach cancer never knowing what happened to her little girl. Being the brother of Marion Schmidt, there was a bit of media and attention that Hans and his other siblings got, um, especially like his younger siblings who didn't fully comprehend what was going on. Like life got hard, not just because they had lost their sister, but because they were the Schmidt gang. You know what I mean? Like, they just were followed, they were asked questions, but they weren't given, they they wanted to ask questions, they wanted answers. He, Hans pretty much sat in this interview at age 66 and said that he was still waiting for the truth. He wants to know what happened to his sister. But that's all that I could find about the families after what had happened to the two girls. So unfortunately, that's all I can leave you with, my lovely listeners. That is the second part of our 1960s Aussie crime wave series. I know there were a few other crimes mentioned in this case that also happened in the 60s to 70s decade. But the three cases that are being covered are the ones that have described Australia losing its innocence. So that's that. That's why... That's what this series covers. As always, though, with unsolved crimes that this podcast has covered before, please get in touch with me. Who do you think committed the crime? Was it the jailer who painted the picture? Or the child murderer? Or the sexual abuser who has been convicted within the last 10 years? Or was it someone else? Was it like, what are your theories? I want to know what your theories are because this is such an odd case. Like there are so many things about it that you just go, well, why did that happen? Why, especially the girls walking off in the wrong direction is like a big question on my mind. It's like, did they do that because they just wanted to walk for a bit by themselves? Did they have their own alcohol and they just wanted to hide away for a drink? Or were they planning on meeting up with someone like, them walking off in the wrong direction and laughing about it really like ticks on my mind because that is a very, I think that's a pivotal choice that the girls made and there was a reason they made it 
And unfortunately, we are not going to find that out unless someone comes forward, unless DNA is found, unless like whatever the case may be, it will not be an- it will not be answered. And there are way too many unanswered questions on this case. So before I keep going on and on and on, I'm going to leave you with that. Get in touch with me with your theories and your thoughts about the case. But until next week, be safe, be good, be better and all that cheesy crap. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime.